Hello and welcome to another installment of the Padverb Podcast. I'm your host, KMO, and in this episode of the podcast, I'm going to share a conversation that I recorded recently with George Zarkadakis. He is the author of numerous books, both fiction and nonfiction. His most recent is called Cyber Republic, Reinventing Democracy in the Age of Intelligent Machines. As I mentioned, George is an author of both fiction and nonfiction, and he also describes himself as a science communicator, an artificial intelligence engineer, a futurist, and a digital innovation professional. In addition to writing books, he also works with private and public organizations to reimagine business and democratic institutions in the fourth industrial revolution. What is this fourth industrial revolution thing? Well, kind of like Web3, it has a variety of definitions which are mostly overlapping, although sometimes not. But looking at Wikipedia, which is, you know, it's not the final word on anything, but it is a place where competing belief systems go to wrestle and, uh, (laughs) you know, push at least temporary winners up into the winner's circle. And right now, the brief definition of the Fourth Industrial Revolution, or 4IR, or Industry 4.0, on Wikipedia is that it conceptualizes rapid change to technology, industries, and societal patterns and processes in the 21st century due to increasing interconnectivity and smart automation. And it goes on and on, but it also talks a little bit about artificial intelligence, gene editing, advanced robotics, and other technologies that blur the lines between physical, digital, and biological worlds. So now, skipping down a bit, just a quick recap of the first three industrial revolutions. The first industrial revolution, or 1IR, nobody calls it that, took place between 1760 or thereabouts and 1820 to 1840, and this is the transition from hand production methods to machines through the use of steam power and water. One of the first industries that it disrupted was textile manufacturing, but it also went on to revolutionize the iron industry, agriculture, and mining. The second industrial revolution began around 1871 and ended about 1914, And this is the period in which extensive railroad and telegraph networks allowed for faster transfer of people and ideas, as well as the beginning of the electrification of industry. It was a period of great economic growth, with an increase in productivity which also caused a surge in unemployment since many factory workers were replaced by machines. The Third Industrial Revolution is one that many of the people listening to this podcast have lived through. It's the Computer Revolution. And anybody who was alive in the 1970s and 1980s, or early 80s anyway, remembers what life and work was like without computers. Things are very different now. Now, the Fourth Industrial Revolution, like all of these other three Industrial Revolutions, people didn't know the exact shape or effect of them as they were happening. And so, too, you know, we don't know exactly which of the many potentially transformational technologies are really going to dominate this period when we look back on it and, you know, explain to ourselves and our our posterity in the future uh, what happened in the early 21st century. But some of the key themes for the 4IR, according to Wikipedia anyway, are interconnection, the ability of machines, devices, sensors, and people to connect and communicate with each other via the Internet of Things or the Internet of People, information transparency, the transparency afforded by Industry 4.0 technology, provides operators with comprehensive information to make decisions. Interconnectivity allows operators to collect immense amounts of data and information from all points in the manufacturing process, identify key areas that can benefit from improvement to increase functionality. 
Technical assistance, the technological facility of systems to assist humans in decision-making and problem-solving, and the ability to help humans with difficult or unsafe tasks. And finally, decentralized decisions, the ability of cyber-physical systems to make decisions on their own and to perform their tasks as autonomously as possible. Basically, to my mind, it's, it's sort of the concept of the technological singularity with the understanding that history continues after the singularity, that things haven't changed so much as to be unrecognizable. They're just vastly different. There's a clear demarcation between what things were like before the Fourth Industrial Revolution and what they're like after. But it's not the end of history. Nor is it the end of the importance of human cognition in shaping the direction of our civilization. As far as we know, there is not a machine in the world that wants anything. They are still doing what they are designed to do, sometimes with unexpected consequences, and sometimes interacting in unexpected ways with other machines and other systems. But still, they have no agency, no desires, and whatever agenda they're operating on was given to them. So those, in my mind, are the, the main distinctions to be drawn between the concept of the fourth industrial revolution and the concept of the technological singularity, which the older I get, the less useful that concept seems, that of the singularity. All right, here's my conversation with George Zarkadakis. You are listening to the Padverb Podcast. I'm your host, KMO, and I am joined by George Zarkadakis, who is the author of a book called Cyber Republic, and it has a longer title, and as always, I don't have the full title committed to memory. So, George, welcome to the podcast, and what's the full title of your book? It's Cyber Republic, Reinventing Democracy in the Age of Intelligent Machines, and it's published by MIT Press. Why does democracy need to be invented or reinvented? in the age of intelligent machines? Because we are at the tipping point when it comes to our economy and our social organization because of artificial intelligence. So this is the technology that is ushering a, a new industrial revolution. If you look back at history, every time there's a new sort of transformative um, technology, such as the one we face now, there is uh, a social and economic reorganization, and that requires a renewal of the social contract, if you like. And in our case, the social contract is between ourselves and those who govern us. And therefore, democracy needs to be reinvented and the social contract rewritten. That's the argument of the book. So democracy is a pretty old concept, but our modern practice and institutions of democratic governance are not very old, you know, historically speaking. And uh, around the time of the last big change wrought on society by technology, which I'm thinking, you know, of the Industrial Revolution, uh, democracy wasn't all that well established, I don't think. So we, you know, our democratic institutions don't have a lot of practice at incorporating radically transforming technologies. Um, before talking about machine intelligence, let's just talk about democracy. I mean, it wasn't a perfect institution to start with. Uh, and in, early in your book, you talk about um, different types of democracy. And we think of liberal democracy as being something, you know, which is noble sounding and it is, you know, devoted to protecting the rights of the individual. But you say, no, actually, liberal democracy is about protecting property rights and maintaining unequal distributions of wealth. So, yes. So let's let's start from there. Let's try to dispel the confusion around the term democracy because different people use it. So you have authoritarians like Putin, for example, 
very recently speaking about the power of democracy in the occupied regions of Ukraine, you know, people deciding to unite with Russia, for example. So he's he's making a, a claim of democracy, and then you know, who's right? I mean, what sort of democracy we're we talking about? So let me let me try to dispel the confusion around the term. So so democracy is a, is a word that you know comes to us from from ancient Greece, and essentially it means the the rule of the demos, which means the poor people, essentially. So just like in Rome, they had the plebeians, the Greeks had the demos. So democracy, in fact, means that the, well, the 99% rules, okay, instead of the 1%, just to make it very simple. Now, the form of government that we have in present time is not the democracy that the Athenians had in the classic times. It's not a direct democracy, and people do not rule. We are ruled by our representatives. So we have an intermediate step, which is the representational form of government that is very instrumental in, in how power is distributed in the modern world. Now, there's a reason for that, and the reason for that has to do with a philosophy called liberalism, which comes to us, uh, well, fairly recent, I would say, you know, from the Enlightenment time in Europe. And the big idea behind liberalism is the idea of natural rights. It means that, you know, as long as you're a human being and you're being born, you have some, some rights that come by by virtue of you being human, like for example, the right to own property, the right to own your own body, to have autonomy, you know, to have freedom, liberty, and so on. That was a, a really amazingly revolutionary idea at the time, but that idea is in conflict with the concept of democracy. Why? Because in a democracy, if the decision needs to be taken by the majority of the people, you end up with what is called the, the tyranny of the majority, right? So the tyranny of the majority means that the majority may choose to take away rights from the minority. So that's the big problem of democracy. Okay, And we see that playing out uh, in the modern times as well, when you have, for example, the so-called illiberal democracies, let's say in Hungary and other places, where authoritarians claim that the majority of the people, for example, are against certain rights of the minority. And because this is democratically decided, therefore those rights can be taken away. So, just to, you know, to recap what I'm saying, you know, it's that tension between, you know, the rule of the people and the fact that the rule of the people usually has or, you know, always has illiberal outcomes, which means people's rights are taken away from them, that we need a sort of a balanced form of government, which is the form of government that we currently have that combines elements from democracy, for example, you know, once every four years, one day every four years, there's true democracy because we go to the, <laughs> you know, and vote for who's going to rule us. And then on that day, yes, we have like democracy, true democracy, and then we don't. And then other people rule for us. And I think that is also what's creating a lot of the, of the issues that we have currently in our government systems uh, about trust. How much do we trust those people to rule in our name and i think that is at the crux of the problem because if they're ruling on our name do they have our interests on their mind or are they not and unfortunately you know empirically we know that but there's also scientific research to back it up uh for instance you know the scientific research that looks at legislation that's passed through congress in the united states showing very clearly that the vast majority of laws passing through congress uh, favors the rich, 
rather than rather the middle class or the or the poorer parts of the American society. And the same thing uh, happens in other countries as well. So that is the that is the genesis, if you like, of the problem around democracy that we face now. And what I try to um, reflect on the book is what is the future of democracy in a world that is becoming increasingly unequal, uh, which is a big issue, and maybe we want to discuss a little bit more to understand why this is an issue for democratic politics to have so much inequality among people. And secondly, what will happen in the near and the, in the midterm future when all those technologies, to go back to the technology, essentially take away the importance of labor in the economy by substituting labor for machines, which are in fact another version of capital. So you have sort of, you know, the sort of imbalance between capital, know-how and labor in a market and labor is diminishing more and more because of automation. So if, if that's the case, then, you know, going back to my initial statement, we really need to rethink what democracy means, right? And how we take decisions, how we govern ourselves, given that prospect of having you know, an automated world, which is both an opportunity, clearly, but it's also a potential threat if we don't manage it properly. Okay. Long way of answering your question, Kemo, but uh, that's, that, that, that's a spectrum of ideas that I'm trying to sort of discuss and, and, uh, in the book and suggest some, some ways forward as well. Long answers are fine by me. It makes my job easier. <laughs> you know, if they get too long, I will interrupt. I think in passing, you explained a technical concept from your book without actually naming it, and that's the uh, principal agent problem. Yes. First of all, let me say that unfortunately, in this universe, you can't have your cake and eat it too, right? Unfortunately, right? So I'm not a utopianist, and I need to say that from the outset. I am a, a realist as far as I'm concerned. I'm trying to figure out what is the optimal way, not the best way, because the best way, unfortunately, leads to totalitarianism, as we've seen through history. So what is the, the best sort of optimal way we can sort our society? Because we have one, on one side, you have the problem of democracy, which ends up to being the tyranny of the majority, right? So we can't really go there. We can't go to a, a form of government of direct democracy, because it's not going to end well. On the other side, however, we have another problem with representational government, which is that the interests of those who represent us do not necessarily align with our interests. So this is the so-called principal agent problem. So in this problem, for example, we are the principals, okay? And we um, pass uh, power to our representatives to take decisions on our behalf as legislators, for example, or as, as the executive government, et cetera, et cetera, right? Now, it so turns out that those agents have their own interest as their top priority and then our interest. So that's, that's a misalignment, okay? A typical example, I mean, it's obvious, I guess, with politicians, I think one should suspect, but there's other examples as well. Like, for, for instance, think of, think of your contract with a, with a lawyer, okay, that is representing you in the trial. Clearly, your interest is to, you know, uh, if you are the accused, to be, you know, pronounced innocent, for instance, and and leave the court as a free person. And that's the job of your lawyer. But your lawyer, if he delivers on that, he will only be paid once, right? <laughs> and you won't be needing him anymore. So his interest is for this trial to go on and on and on so he can get paid more times, 
you know, this is a rather simplified version and very simplistic. And I'm sure most lawyers will probably say, no, I will never do that. But, you know, this is the problem with principal agent, with the principal agent problem, right? And this thing played out very vividly, I think, with the last financial crisis when we saw our representatives, you know, taking decisions on our behalf that clearly favored uh, the big banks uh, and the rich, right? While socializing the, the risks that they taken and passing the bill to us, the taxpayers, to pay. And I think it was that moment in history in 2000, 2008, 2009, that tipped the scales of trust massively in, in the Western world. And since then, I don't think Western democracies have recovered. I think the, 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 the percentage of people that mistrust democracy, especially young people, uh, who are sort of the new voters coming on board, it's, it's alarming. Uh, and, you know, we're talking about, you know, 80% on average do not trust uh, democracy. Um, unfortunately for us, although democracy is far from perfect, all other political systems are, are much worse. <laughs> so I think that is the big dilemma we have here. Okay, how can you at least, you know, make our, our government and our political system better and fairer, perhaps. How can we imagine, for instance, a society given the opportunity of automation? And I, I want to come back to that because this is the big opportunity in front of us, right? And this opportunity means increased productivity for people, uh, and that means increased wealth and increased prosperity for everybody, as long as that bounty of the fourth industrial revolution is more equitably distributed in, in society. It doesn't go only to the to the hands of the very few, as we clearly see happening now, because of the way digital businesses are structured, the way our data are being used, et cetera, et cetera, which we can, you know, we can discuss in, in more detail a, bit, a little bit more. Because that will end up in us, you know, going back to the feudal times, essentially, you know, and, um, you know, and that will be a disaster, I think, a social disaster of enormous magnitude. And we need to avoid that. Well, you've mentioned the fourth industrial revolution, and we'll get into that shortly. But uh, even before democracy, uh, there was a transition from a hunter-gatherer lifestyle to a settled agricultural lifestyle. And you describe this as introducing, one, a lower quality of life for most people, uh, but also the beginnings of social inequality and something that I hadn't read elsewhere. I mean, everything that I've just summarized, I've read elsewhere. But what I hadn't read elsewhere was the role of animal labor in the process of creating a class of creditors and a class of debtors, which is sort of the, the basis for the very Baroque social inequality structures that we live with today. So let me ask you to summarize that. Absolutely. I mean, you know, the word capital, actually, the roots of the word capital means, you know, the head of uh, an ox that is, um, you know, uh, plowing a field. So um, when you know, humanity moved from a nomadic life, which was based on, you know, um, an, a small number of, of people, an extended family, if you like, uh, which was more or less, you know, uh, a society of equals, uh, to a more structured society that need to um, diversify labor, uh, that needed laws, uh, that needed hierarchies in order to be able to um, execute uh, in terms of agricultural production, et cetera, et cetera. There was a trade-off in human society, okay? So the trade-off, the big trade-off was, you know, living a life of freedom, uh, you know, we were very carefree, but very uncertain uh, because you never knew if, you know, there was a meal at the end of the day for you. 
to a life where meals were, to a large extent, guaranteed, but you had to give up your freedom, you have to give up your liberty, and uh, at least in the beginning, you have to give up a lot of your health, because the diet that uh, the first sort of you know settlers had was very limited compared to the diet that you know our, our sort of ancestors, our nomadic ancestors had. Okay, so the health was deteriorated massively. Okay, but there was, I think, you know, a good trade-off if you look at it, you know, in the span of history, because that created complex human structures. Those complex human structures uh, created innovation. Capital was created. In the beginning, it was you know animals that uh, you know some people had and some people didn't. The people that had could produce more than the people that didn't, and that started creating inequality. But that inequality worked out, I think, overall quite well for humanity because it led us out of the so-called Malthusian trap. And, and this is very important to, 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 to note. And Malthusian trap means that the human population is not productive enough to produce more food that it needs so that it increases its numbers, right? So we talk, for example, today about, you know, the ex population explosion and, you know, humanity reaching 9 billion and, you know, the impact on the environment. And we talk about human numbers mostly in a negative way. But I think there's a very positive side to, to having, you know, a lot of people on earth. And that means a lot of brains thinking together about problems, right? So the, the potential of humanity, of all those minds connecting and thinking about problems is, is enormous. And that's where I think humanity is at its best, when it innovates ways out of its problems. And that was not able to, it was not, you know, it was not possible to happen for thousands and thousands of years. And the first time it happened was the, with the first industrial revolution, right? And when you see what the first industrial revolution is, is an amazing, you know, change in the fate of all humanity. So population grows, human productivity grows, you know, everything changes, right? So that was a big tipping point. I think we are at a similar tipping point now with artificial intelligence. And that is why I, I think we need to reflect a lot in how we manage this technology in terms of its economic repercussions, but also in terms of its political repercussions as well. Okay. I see artificial intelligence as an enormous opportunity, right, uh, for, for humanity to go to the next level of technological civilization. But only if it's managed in a democratic way. If, it, if it's not, we're talking about a dystopian nightmare. And you can see signs of this dystopian nightmare in the way that authoritarian regimes are using artificial intelligence to spy not only to spy on the people, but also to condition certain behaviors in the population, okay? To reduce human beings into obedient sort of numbers instead of free and, and autonomous beings, to which I think we should aspire all. Well, regular listeners to that podcast know that I could just start talking on those topics now and take up the rest of the hour, but <laughs> I won't. <laughs> And they also know that I'm in no way averse to talking about artificial intelligence, but I do want to hold off on that for just a little bit longer, because I think some of what we're talking about uh, is is so old. I mean, it's it's older than democracy. It's certainly older than industrialism. A book that made quite an impression on me, I read a few years ago, is by David Graeber. It's called Debt, the First 5,000 Years. And he makes a lot of great points in that book, but the biggest one really is right there in the title. 
that the the psychological obligation, you know, the the willingness of human beings to enter into debt arrangements is older than civilization. It is so fundamental to how we relate to one another, and it seems to be at the heart of not just our current dilemma, but pretty much every large-scale organizational dilemma we've had, you know, as a species, um, that there seems to be no upper limit to what the people who, you know, the creditor class or the ownership class, you know, to how much of the pie they are willing to take. There never seems to come a realization. It's like, you know, $8 billion, I think maybe that's enough. Maybe I don't need to acquire anymore. If that, you know, for the people who acquire that much, the realization just never seems to come. Now, I know that there is the, what do they call it? The giver's pledge that people like Mark Zuckerberg and other Silicon Valley uh, executives who have made billions of dollars, you know, in a short period have pledged to give it all away over the course of their lifetime. But in so doing, I mean, certainly you can't look at somebody like Bill Gates and say that he is just benevolent and selfless in how he distributes his money. He's also using his giving as a form of social control. You know, it's it's not just pure... Oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like a philanthropist. Philanthropy. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's it's not pure philanthropy. It's, you know, it is funding different organizations and different projects to elevate his own priorities about how we need to develop as, as a society. So I'm, I'm just not terribly impressed by, you know, the the beneficence <laughs> and the magnanimous of the, the wealthy. Uh, but, you know, before we even talk about artificial intelligence, this this seems to be an aspect of human psychology and sociology that needs tackling. And, you know, without reference to technology, what, what can we say about that that, you know, helps us in the least? So, first of all, let, let me say that I, I probably agree with you. I don't believe in the better nature of humanity. I, I, I don't think we should trust the angels inside us. And we shouldn't. And we, we need not to. And whoever, whatever, if you look at, you know, political philosophers that aspire to create the perfect human, they all end up in blood and, and tears. They were all totalitarian ideology like Nazism, fascism, communism, you know, they all imagine sort of a perfect being. Perfect beings will never exist. So we need to make do with our imperfections, which are fine as far as I'm concerned. I quite like that human <laughs> imperfection Me too. Uh, myself. I think it's, it's interesting. Now let's, let's tackle a little bit of what you said about debt, because I think this is very important, right? And it's very important for a conversation as well. I think, you know, banks and the banking system, it's, it's very important for, for society, if it works well. If you're an entrepreneur, if you have a great idea and you want to build something, um, the only way you can build something fast is by borrowing money, by somehow you know, having access to capital, right? And that is great. You know, it, it was the application of capital that made the first industrial revolution and the following industrial revolution is the application of capital that, that creates the, the fourth industrial revolution. We need capital. Okay, but there are various uses of capital. There are productive uses of capital, where the capital actually goes into building new companies and creating new wealth and creating new jobs and you know creating prosperity. And I think we should differentiate that sort of use of capital, which, in my opinion, is a, is a very positive and very welcome use of capital, with the use of capital that takes place, for example, by governments when they borrow uh, in order to fund 
you know, so, sort of programs that serve not necessarily the people, but the, um, but the politicians themselves to be uh, voted against in the next election. Uh, so that's where we see a lot of, a lot of waste. Uh, this is debt that then is, you know, taxpayers are saddled with and taxpayers have never really, you know, asked for that debt. That's the, the negative application of capital, in my opinion. That's where capitalism goes massively wrong because, you know, if you have capital, you can either give it to an entrepreneur and take the risk and build a company, maybe, or you can give it to a government, which is a safer bet, right? Uh, because a government has a few million sort of workers out there, they're going to pay off the, that debt sooner or later. So we see a lot of capital being diverted into this completely unproductive uh, sort of sink that is called, you know, various government problems, uh, programs, you know, enormous bloating of, of, of government budgets and no real effect in the economy. Okay? Uh, it's just creating a sort of a vicious circle, in my opinion, and not only in my opinion, I mean, the data show this way, of uh, people becoming dependent on government programs, right? So, um, so I think we should differentiate between those two, right? And of course, you know, all the other sort of machinations of the financial system and all those innovations, the, you know, uh, credit swaps, derivatives, all the sort of fancy sort of uh, zoo of, of financial instruments that, that essentially boils down to, again, you know, governments having to bail out all those, you know, smart guys with the nice suits who make a lot of billions on, and then when things crash down, we, we need to pay the bill, right? So in any conversation around debt, I think we should always keep an eye on the role of government in, 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 in how the debt is acquired, accumulated, and then trickle down to, to society, okay? And I think that is, again, going back to the sort of principal agent problem right because there's a lot of revolving doors you know politicians sort of live you know leave the sort of parliamentary positions to enter into you know big banks and big consulting firms you know because you know they're essentially they're colluding if you like with with the financial system in in just making money while everybody else gets poor right so so that's that's the bad side of capitalism in my opinion but there's also a very good side of capitalism that's, that's the side where you know money goes where it should go in order to create new wealth, new business, new prosperity uh, for, for, for many more people. And we, we've seen both sides of the coin, I think. You know. We need to fix definitely the, the side that is, is creating misery and, and negativity. We definitely need to do that. And that is a problem of democracy again. Okay? So who takes those decisions? You know, how transparent are those decisions uh, to the people? Okay? Uh, how can we have a say in, in those in those decisions okay so the people that make them are checked by by us because clearly the media are not checking them properly right the, at least the so you know the mainstream the corporate media, media i would so, say so again yeah. the corporate media yeah because they you know they, they belong to the same people that make the money you know we all know that right so so how do we deal with that? And I, th and I think the only way we can deal with that is with political means, right? With increasing the power of the people, you know, or increasing the, the say that we have as citizens. So currently, I mean, the liberal democracy model requires of us to live like zombies, essentially, and then awaken, reanimate it like that sort of day in the fourth year cycle and 
go to the polls, vote for whoever need, will govern us for the next four years, and then go back into the sort of, you know, suspended animation state of the so-called citizen. We're not really citizens, you know. I think we're just spectators. Uh, and of course, you know, we get angry, we, you know, throw a few things at the stage of those idiot politicians, but, you know, we're, we're spectators. We're not really actors. I think we should try to imagine a way where we become more of an of, of act, have a more of an acting role rather than a spectator role, okay? Again, by keeping the balance between direct democracy and representational democracy. I'm not for direct democracy, you know, 100% for the reasons I, I explained before, right? But we need to get more of that, if you like, into the, into the mix that we currently have. That's what I think. So I will share one opinion. Uh, you can comment on it or not, and then we'll move on to the technology. When talking about deficit spending, it's often described as borrowing from the future, which is to say, in order to conduct business now, we are saddling future generations with a debt obligation that they had no say in entering into. But time travel doesn't exist. We cannot actually go into the future and gather energy and resources and labor and bring it to the present. All we're doing is using the materials, the energy, the labor, and the know-how that exists in the present to do things in the present. So the idea that in order to employ people and to coordinate their actions and to harvest natural resources and create value-added products and, and you know do things with what's on hand in the present, that we have to invoke debt in the future, to me, that's just bookkeeping gone wrong. I mean, <laughs> that's just... That is perverse, in my opinion. So I, I could go on, but I will not. I will let you comment on it, and then we'll talk about AI. It's an interesting idea. I think time machine has been invented, and this is exactly the, the time machine at our disposal. You know, we, we borrow from the future. You know, we go to the future, and we, we think that this money exists in the future. So instead of keeping it there, we bring it into the present, and we use it in order to essentially rearrange matter, okay? This is how wealth is created. We rearrange matter all the time. So, you know, this concept of finite resources on the planet, um, I think it's, of course, they're finite in some way, but it's not that aspect of resources that is the most critical one for our future well-being. It's how we innovate in rearranging what is on our planet that makes a difference. If you think, for example, you know, you know, simple things like, you know, chemical engineering, right? Uh, new materials, you know, how we build sort of an industrial civilization, right? How we take things from nature and we build batteries and computers that, you know, do a, more amazing things. You know, that positive feedback is because we, we have a way of rearranging matter, okay? And the potential rearranging matter is, is near infinite, actually. Right? So we may live in a, in a finite planet, but the way we can rearrange resources in a finite planet is, is infinite. Okay? And the way to do that is applying you know, innovation and capital. Now, what happens, I think, with this magical sort of time machine is that we have somehow agreed as a society to believe in this magical thinking. Okay? We, we have come together and we agreed implicitly that you know, when this time machine sort of creates money in a balance sheet, right? Magically, because that's how money is created on, on a bank balance sheet. Someone just, you know, enters, you know, a number on a balance sheet, right? Just like that, of thin air, okay? 
we have agreed to believe in that, that this is real. And all our actions from that point onwards kind of like agree that this is real. So, we, you know, the money that is created out, out of nowhere pays for salaries and those salaries pay for goods, et cetera, et cetera. And that's the magic of the, of the economy, okay? Now, there, is, there tends to be a time of reckoning uh, when you borrow that too much, right? This, this cycle of debt has been, you know, very well established, you know, you know what happens and how prices change and not need to go into the, the detail of economics, but there is, seems to be a cycle. And unfortunately, you know, it happens. This has to do with, you know, the entropy that exists out there. You just can't, you know, pump uh, energy out of a system forever. Sometimes, you know, the balance needs to, to reestablish itself. Um, but that, I'm afraid that's part of the deal. Okay, the, I think we win if in that cycle we manage to produce something that is lasting and that can take us to the next level. That's, that's I think, the best thing we can do. We can't avoid the cycle. And without the cycle, we can't really produce anything. Okay. Um, you know, again, going back to what I said before, we live in a very imperfect world. And the only thing that we have that can take us you know, to the next level of survival you know, is, is our imaginations and our minds. And both are at play when it comes to the economic system. Are you familiar with the, uh, the sort of jokey metaphor of the construction crew can't build because they're out of inches? No, no, I don't. So yeah, there's there's a contractor. He's on site. He's overseeing the construction of a home, and all the employees, the builders, have showed up. They're ready to work, and they've got the materials on hand, and uh, you know they're they're ready to get going. And the boss says, "Sorry, guys, we can't work today because." We've run out of inches. You know, we have to measure boards. We have to cut lumber to specific dimensions. And you know, th there's just this unit of account that we use to, you know, to facilitate transactions and, and coordinate actions. We're out. We don't have right. any more. Sorry, we can't. We can't work today because we're out of inches. And that, you know, to me, that's, you know, we we can't. Uh, we, we can't organize labor. We can't in, engage in big projects. We can't utilize the resources at our disposal right now because we don't have dollars. I mean, <laughs> that just seems crazy. But I've made my point. I, we will not belabor it. Absolutely. And, and, and just, just, just to add something to the mix, because I think it might be relevant, um, you know, in our conversation is sort of this idea of, of creating money, you know, cryptocurrencies. Okay. Cryptocurrencies is an interesting concept because you have some people who are sort of absolutely worship them and believe in them and some people that <laughs> hate them. And most people don't understand them, I think, yet. Okay. But I think what is, for me, interesting about cryptocurrencies is right now we have, we, we all, all, you know, if you look back in history, we had private money in the past, right? It was not, you know, money was not always kind of like governed by, by governments or central banks. You know, there was a time when just, you know, there was private money in the past, okay? And now we have another sort of form of money that's sort of emerging, which is again, private money. It's just been created again out of nowhere right as code as you know it's imaginary it, it does not exist okay but it, it it seems to represent some value although there is debate whether there is value or there's not this is the big debate you know, is there value i mean what, is the, the bitcoin is nineteen thousand dollars is it really nineteen thousand dollars i mean what is the value what's the utility of this damn thing you know big debate about value okay and we can talk about value if you like later on but i think what's interesting about that is that the power when it comes to who issues money and who controls the money is shifting again back to the demos, 
to the people, right? And, and let me justify this. It's not a metaphor. What I usually do when I talk about cryptocurrencies to people, I ask them a question to test themselves which side of the fence are on. Okay? And, and it's a simple question. Who would you trust your money with? Would you trust your money to a regulated agent, like, for example, a bank? So would you trust a bank to keep your money? Or would you trust the people? And by the people, I mean, you know, all those individuals who are sort of addresses on a blockchain that validate transactions on the blockchain and essentially say that you have the money that you have and your money is secure and your money is there on the blockchain. That happens in a, in a very sort of classical Athens democratic way on the blockchain, right? There's no leaders there. Everybody is, is equal and everybody decides to get that your money is there. So if you like, you know, blockchains, then you are, you're, you know, your cognitive system is very open to uh, the nature of, of democracy as where everybody's equal, right? And all the risks that go with it, okay? If you're not, then your cognitive system feels more secure with having someone, you know, keeping your, your money safe. Unfortunately, history and, and very much recent history has shown that, you know, that sort of regulated agents are not particularly safe, you know? I mean, if you had money with Lehman Brothers, you would know now. Uh, but hey, you know, that, that, that's the point I'm trying to make. Um, I don't actually hold this position myself, but I know a lot of people do, so I will represent it. The blockchain is supposed to obviate the need for trust. You don't have to trust all the other people who are you know, co-participants to the blockchain. You trust the code. The code is law. Trust is irrelevant. That's, you know, that, that is almost a uh, religious... Um, level of, you know, ideological commitment for some people who are involved in blockchain. I personally think that social trust is just, it is the lubricant that allows us to do the, the fantastic, complicated, you know, grand scale uh, human activities that we engage in and that trying to eliminate trust or the need for trust is misguided. Okay. So, so quick comment on that. First of all, I'd like to distinguish between when we're talking about blockchains, about one system of blockchain called proof of work and another system called proof of stake. Not trying to be very technical, but Bitcoin, for example, is based on a, on a, on a mechanism called proof of work. You can actually assume that the audience knows the distinction. Okay. Since they do, then, you know, this idea about trusting the code, I think it applies only for proof of work systems and does not apply for proof of stake systems. Um, I think the proof of stake systems are prone to, uh, you know, uh, tempering with with the blockchain, uh, and I don't think they fall under the sort of you know the rubric of trust the code. I wouldn't trust uh, a proof of stake uh, blockchain. I just wouldn't personally. Okay, <laughs> uh, but I would trust you know a proof of work blockchain. You know, and going back to my statement that you know you can't have a perfect thing. We know that you know proof of work are very sort of environmentally uh, you know uh, problematic. Okay. They are energy intensive, needlessly so. They're very energy intensive, of course. But that was the that was the price, that was the trade-off again for having something that could not be possibly tempered with. For example, Bitcoin uh, has not been hacked uh, so far. I think you know it will it will chug along as long as there are computers and humans in, in the world, you know, in the solar system, it will chug along forever, right? I'm not so sure about the other blockchains. Uh, now, if, if this is worthwhile or not, that's a completely different conversation. But, uh, you know, but definitely the way that Satoshi sort of figured out how to do proof of work 
it's just amazing. It's just, you know, it's just, just an incredible technology that realized um, an ideal, if you like, that has political roots, clearly. And that ideal has been and is, given that people are no angels, how can you structure systems so that we behave in a benevolent way without coercion, right? Without coercion, okay? I think, I think this is the ideal, the political ideal that gave birth uh, to blockchain and all this sort of idea of cryptocurrencies. Can we do that as societies? Because we've tried everything else, right? We've tried sort of authoritarian societies, totalitarian regimes, and that was a complete failure. Uh, we, we, we see a democracy, representational democracy, and, and this is hugely problematic because, you know, there's so much collusion between the representatives and, you know, the, the financial classes and everything are just robbing us, you know. Can we imagine another, another system where, you know, given the fact that we are devils ourselves, can behave in a benevolent way and, and in a collaborative way without really needing to trust each other, okay? And, and I think that, that is the big thing and the big idea behind Bitcoin and proof of work regardless of whether you think it's valuable or not, uh, which is another conversation altogether. Well, I, I agree with much of what you've just said in that it is um, almost an article of faith of mine that human beings respond to incentives. And if the incentives are designed correctly, then even selfish, venal, you know, almost evil people will do the right thing. <laughs> you know? Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. And that was, you know, goes back to you know, Adam Smith, who's trying to sort of, you know, understand how the economy works and, you know, how people can, who have sort of selfish, have selfish urges and selfish goals end up creating something that is good for everybody else. I mean, how, how does that happen? And, and you know, and, and we have the sort of beginning of sort of liberal political thing, liberal in the old sense of the word, not the new one, uh, you know, going back to Adam Smith and, and others, Scottish Enlightenment, Hume, whatever. Well, in addition to speaking into microphones on occasions like this and uh, making YouTube videos, I'm also a cartoonist. And um, I, I've just lost a, a pretty serious chunk of my monthly income because a cartooning gig that I've been relying on for the few years has gone on hiatus due to a funding shortfall, you know, in the organization that was paying me. I didn't lose my job to AI, but in this same year, 2022, Artificial intelligence and its image-generating capabilities have taken enormous leaps. And I, there's, I'm not a participant to these arguments, but there are arguments going on between people who are very enthusiastic about this new tool and people like me who were dependent on our ability to draw and create art in a very slow and laborious way for an income. And I personally would love to use these tools to speed up my workflow so that I could create more art more quickly and, you know, devoting less time and less uncomfortable. I'm like sitting at the drawing board, my back starts to hurt after a while. You know, it's actually physical labor. I would like to get more finished product out of my physical labor. So I'm not opposed to these tools at all. I'm very excited about them, but they don't really enhance one's drawing ability. They completely bypass it. You know, it's, it's a text interface. You, you describe in words what you want, but the description that you put in is not a, a beautifully crafted sentence. It is sort of this, um, you know, it's a list of attributes that, you know, if you put them in in the right order, uh, you, you get very amazing looking images, but it's, it's not literature by any stretch, you know? So 
the one, the interface is, it just doesn't complement my existing skill set, which is frustrating. And I haven't taken the time to learn to master the new interface, largely because I think it's going to be very transitory anyway. Um, but it's, it certainly has, again, I did not lose my job to AI. You know, that's, that's not what's happened here. But you talk about in the book when uh, a technology replaces a certain type of labor that it has a couple of different effects. One is that, yeah, it does put some people out of work and then they're left to flounder and figure out a different way to put food on the table. But it also empowers a different class of workers. And that class of workers now has an expanded skill set. They have an expanded range of capabilities and they make more money. You know, they're more high status workers, uh, which, you know, if you're in that position, good on you, you know, but the, the challenges in, you know, taking care of the people who were displaced or the people who are just not in a position to participate at all, because these things are not rolled out evenly to everybody, you know, and the early adopters certainly have the, an enormous first mover advantage. And I think now, now we're certainly getting into the range, you know, the place where it's, it's appropriate to talk about um, not just technology in general, but very specifically machine learning, big data, training algorithms through the collection of big data and, you um, I'll hold off on, you know, incorporating blockchain into that question. Let's just start with, with artificial intelligence and the current state of it. Absolutely. So the way I'm thinking about artificial intelligence is like a cognitive multiplier, right? As opposed to sort of a, a physical multiplier that was, you know, mechanical engineering, let's say, or, or chemical engineering, anything to do with atoms. So now we have a way of multiplying the power of, of bits, right? Of patterns, of essentially thoughts. Okay, and and ideas. Um, you know, it's interesting that you've you made a, a comment around the sort of new technology, sort of voice to image, and, and in fact, voice to video. Right? Uh, it's it's not coincidental that this comes from uh, you know social media companies that are trying to sort of you know extend expand their business, and their business is based on content, and therefore you know if if they have if there is sort of tools that everybody can use. Right, and and what that's what happens with with technology. It democratizes things, and the democratization of everything means that those who were once experts are not experts anymore. Okay, uh, this is what you know motivated the Luddites to attack the machines and break them down. Right, because essentially what those machines did back in England was that you didn't have to be a skilled worker to operate them, an unskilled worker. Could do the same thing. It's exactly the same pattern right now with all those artificial intelligence systems. Okay, so that means you know that means a couple of things. It means you know if you're an expert, then you have to reinvent yourself, become more of an expert. If you're not an expert, then you can use those tools. But then again, what is the value that you're creating? And I think that is the key question here because you know again, if you look at the sort of social media platforms, you know as an example of artificial intelligence and you'll see you know how many millions of people are using them you know some of them are spending a good time you know of the day you know just doing stuff a very tiny minority makes any income out of those platforms a very tiny tiny minority and if that is the way that you know if that is a sort of an image of the future and i think it is an image of the future that is you know we can we can think of the you know in, in 20 years from now like artificial intelligence being doing doing all that stuff, democratizing everything, being so easy to do whatever you like, and then how are we gonna make money out of this, right? How are we gonna 
how we're going to fund ourselves. Okay, and that is what brings the sort of big debate about universal basic income and you know other ways of you know tax robot tax. You know there were a few ideas that were being thrown around uh, a few years ago when you know, there was a big discussion about AI. Now the discussion is kind of like quiet down. Not many people talk about AI. I guess everybody got tired of talking about that. But in the mean, you know, while it's not talking about AI, AI is, is exponentially advancing, okay? Well, as it usually happens, right? So the problem has not gone away simply because people aren't talking about it. In fact, the problem is there with us and it's becoming greater and greater, okay? And it will, it will impact society. I mean, if you look at the Western societies right now, especially in societies that are more unequal, like for example, the United States, which has a lot of inequality, you will see that, you know, people are sort of have jobs but they can't make ends meet. So the income they have is not enough for them to actually live, right? Uh, they live, you know, hand to mouth. They don't have, you know, the ability of, you know, taking the kids to college. You know, it, they are trapped in, 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 a, in an economic situation where they, they work, they are employed, but they're not making enough money to live, right? Which is the worst possible scenario. And I think that is because there aren't many good quality jobs to go around if you're not skilled. But if artificial intelligence erodes the jobs that skilled people have, what that means is that more and more skilled people will start falling down to that poverty trap that others have. So that is the trend. And only the highly skilled people, you know, the very sort of super educated sort of scientists, engineers, you know, the, you know only those people will have the money anymore. And everybody else will just become poorer and poorer as time goes. And now that we, with inflation, you'll see that accelerating even faster. And that will be a, that's a time bomb at the foundations of our political system. And it will be very easy to exploit by an authoritarian guy who will come along and promise everything to the destitute. Okay. And that's when we're going to see, you know, a lot worse things happen than the, than the ones we have witnessed. And, and that is the problem that I think we should try to avoid by rethinking the social contract. And there are ways of rethinking that. So I don't believe in universal basic income for, the, for one reason only, because it requires a central administrator, again, the state, the government, and we just discussed the problem with the government, right? If we put the government in, you know, in charge of redistributing wealth, we'll end up poorer, as we have so far. Right? Because if the governments were so efficient, we wouldn't have the problems that we have now. Okay? Clearly, they're not. Okay? They have proven themselves not to be. Okay? So just trusting them again with our future, I don't think will be, you know, it makes, makes very good sense. So if not the government, then who? Okay? That is the question. So I think there is an opportunity with those new technologies, again, such as blockchain, uh, indeed, indeed as blockchain, that completely changes the power balance in the digital economy by introducing this idea of ownership in the digital economy that, that does not exist, has not existed before, right? Like owning assets, digital assets, thanks to blockchain. I think that is a, the, the big thing about blockchain, the thing that gets me excited, if you like. And I, and I believe that this shift of power, the ability of people, for example, to own their identities, own their data, own their ideas individually and collectively, and therefore, through that ownership, being part of the new wealth being created, okay? Not being serfs as we are now, because what we are doing now, for example, every time we use a digital system, we are given a free service in return of all, for all our data, 
right? It's just like, you know, like serfdom in the Middle in the Middle Ages, right? Where they're, you know, plowing the land of the Lord and, you know, the Lord gets all the money that's, you know, plowing data, going data, data. And then, and then you know, yeah, okay, we can have, you know, food on our plate, you know, free, me free email. That's the social contract right now in the digital economy. Uh, that is clearly not sustainable for the reason we, we talked about before, because of AI eroding, you know, incomes across the board and eroding now middle class income as well, you know, skilled worker income. So that is the kind of new social contract that I'm envisioning came on. Something that is bottoms up, something that is entrepreneurial, something that is creating new ways of business organization, which may be, you know, collectives, data unions, trade unions, competing in a free market economy, clearly, but one that redistributes power from the few to the many, okay? So, so that is what I'm sort of arguing in the book and I'm sort of giving a few ideas of, of how to do that. For example, you know, how to uh, collectively manage data in a city where the citizens of that city, you know, have income because of the way that, they, you know, practical examples of how we can actually instigate that in society because we need I, I don't know if my ideas are good or not but we need a lot more ideas and much cleverer ideas to, to figure that out somehow because if we don't you know the consequences will be extremely dire there are many amazing things that you know blockchain technology can do but the cynic or the skeptic might say uh all of the supposed utility of, of blockchain is really um you know it's a solution in search of a problem that people want to make money off of it. So they spin these fantasies about how we can make the world better with, you know, blockchain technology, but you don't need blockchain technology to give everybody a job and an income. So I think about, well, Bitcoin, it was a response to the 2008 financial crisis where everybody got taxed basically to make the rich people who got us into trouble whole again. And, you know, uh, Satoshi Nakamoto, whoever he or she is, probably he, I'm guessing, you know, he was animated by this injustice, you know, and by his indignation at it. And he created uh, Bitcoin, but it doesn't do anything. I mean, it just kind of sits there. You know, it's it's like money in the bank in that it's uh, it's a digital record of you owning something, but it, it doesn't do anything. There are all kinds of uh, new projects. I think of uh, Cardano is the one that, you know, is the biggest, uh, is, it's got the highest profile of, you know, uh, a blockchain that is actually designed to do work you know, to track uh, digital identity and to certify people's credentials in, in school systems or to keep track of, I think, uh, cattle in Mongolia is one of the, the projects that Charles Hoskinson is currently working on. But, you know, there's lots of things like that, like uh, Helium, which is uh, sort of a high-speed internet uh, delivery network that's, you know, it's a combination of uh, these devices that are sort of mining cryptocurrencies, but at the same time, they're routers creating this, this sort of mesh network in, in communities or uh, Theta, which is, you know, for distributed video. Uh, there's all kinds of utility tokens, but Bitcoin, which doesn't really do anything, is 40% of the entire crypto universe. And that's just a reality, you know, that any any notion of what we're going to do with Bitcoin to improve the situation sort of has, or not Bitcoin, but what we're going to do with blockchain technology has to start with the reality that Bitcoin is what it is. It, it's got that first mover advantage. It is the giant in the room. Can Bitcoin be put to any really productive use in, you know, in the vision that you have for um, a digital society? 
So I'd like to sort of separate, if you like, the underlying technology, which is blockchain from sort of applications of blockchain. Cryptocurrencies is an application of blockchain, okay? I'm more interested in the, although cryptocurrency is extremely interesting, of course, I'm, I'm more interested in the blockchain as technology and the promise that it holds for this redistribution of power in the digital economy. I think that is what motivates me and moves me the most. Now, it's still very early days when it comes to blockchain technology. Okay, let me say that on the outset. There's a lot of technical problems to solve. I, I'm sort of working in the field. Um, you know, I'm, I'm building stuff on Web3 with, you know, with a team. And, you know, there's huge, huge technical problems to solve. Um, the, the field is very siloed. If you build, for example, in one blockchain, you can't sort of, you know, you know people cannot use whatever you have built on another blockchain. So there's no uh, interoperability between blockchains, just to mention one, one thing, which is very important. But the reason why so many thousands and probably hundreds of thousands of you know, really smart people are sort of really excited about blockchain is because of this one thing that I mentioned, the fact that you can actually own stuff on the web. I think that is the, that is the, the game changer here because before blockchain, you couldn't. Before blockchain, you, you owned nothing, okay? Uh, you were owned by others and all those big tech companies have been built on that premise. The premise that you own nothing and they can suck up your, your data, which is the most valuable thing in the digital economy. Just to mention one, I can mention others, but let's focus on data right now and use that data in order to train the AI algorithms and create all those wonderful services that they, they have created to make all those billions of dollars, right? So essentially, and I'm not trying to sort of obviously underestimate the, you know, the, the effort that those companies have put in and the brilliant minds that they have hired and the money they have spent, the risk they have taken. I appreciate that, but they have tapped into a resource that is us, okay? And yet that resource has not been um, compensated. Okay. So the, the big opportunity with blockchain is that we can be compensated now uh, when acting as a resource for the building of those new of those new businesses, okay? Not only compensated, but we can, you know, have very sophisticated ways of monetizing that value and create new wealth out of that value that can be distributed more evenly, potentially more evenly, okay? That depends how this thing plays out. And clearly, you know, not everybody is, you know, socially conscious in, in, in blockchain and thinking all you know, the good of, of the planet and humanity, right? Most people think, you know, the good of themselves. But again, that's how capitalism works. And hopefully, you know, we'll have a, a good result at the end, but we'll see, okay? But so far, and again, it's early days, a lot of technical issues to, to resolve at the, at the foundational level, if you like, at the, at the level of infrastructure and the way of, you know, how the technology is actually ticking in order for applications to be built on it, okay? Useful applications. So we, we're not there yet, okay? We've seen, for instance, you know, cryptocurrencies. We've seen what is called non-fungible tokens, you know, we, we're seeing something called DeFi that's coming on board. You know, these are sort of, you know, experimentations uh, with how we can use the blockchain. I think more and more experimentation will, will begin to take place once uh, the infrastructure of blockchain is, has been resolved. Once we have, for example, interoperability between blockchains. So if I'm an application builder, if I want to build, I don't know, an application for 
you know, the new Facebook, right? That belongs to the users or something like that. I can't really do it now. Uh, it's, it's almost impossible. The other thing that I find very interesting on blockchain is, is also how we can govern ourselves as societies and as businesses. There's this concept called the Decentralized Autonomous Organization, DAO for short, that I think is a very revolutionary idea. Uh, it's something that creates massive efficiencies at scale for collective decision. It is also prone to biases and, uh, you know, it's far from perfect. But the fact that we have a mechanism right now to imagine, let's say, for example, you know, direct democracy that happened in, in ancient Athens where, you know, there were about 10, maybe 20,000 people. Imagine having a similar sort of governance at the city level, a big city level or a nation level or perhaps a big sort of business level. I think that is very exciting. We need more time in order to, to build better and experiment more. And I think, you know, give it, give it a few years and, uh, and maybe we have, you know, a, a new web that is much better than the current one. Certainly a, a new web that is more sustainable okay, than the one we have now. Uh, because what we have now is just, it's not working, in my opinion. Uh, it makes us poor. You've described the expectation that most of the people generating value for the web will not be compensated for it. But are there other ways that, uh, that you haven't mentioned that the current web is either dysfunctional or, or even counterproductive to the collective well-being of the people who use it? Well, clearly. I mean, if you look at the damage that social media have done to you know, political discourse across the world, I mean, it's, it's enormous, right? Uh, there's a lot of sort of negative socioeconomic externalities from those systems. And that has to do with the way those systems have been designed, you know. And, and design is, is another sort of concept, which I think can be completely reinvented in, in the Web3 environment, right? Because right now, when you think about, you know, the way those social media platforms were designed, you have engineers that sort of, you know, were giving a problem, okay, how can I get more people to spend more time on my social platform, right? That was the problem. So the engineers sat down, thought, okay, let's optimize around likes, okay? So let's, you know, let's have these metrics of people, you know, just push like, and then, you know, that kind of like feeds the algorithm. And on the basis of that, the algorithm keeps showing them the same content again and again. So they keep pushing, so you keep, you do this flywheel, right? So that's how you optimize from an engineering perspective. That's how they did it, okay? There was no one in the room to tell them, okay, guys, what are the sort of consequences of doing that? Nobody has thought through the consequences, right? They were not given such a brief anyways. I'm not blaming them, okay? I think, you know, the opportunity is to sort of completely rethink the digital economy where you have a more sort of, you know, reflection of what might be the consequences of digital applications. And you can only have that if design is community-based, okay? Rather than, you know, just having a bunch of engineers in a room, you know, and just giving them a brief. And because what they're going to do is they're going to deliver on that brief, but they're not going to have a conversation on how that's going to play out down the road. Okay. Because essentially what you have, if you optimize around those metrics, and we clearly see that people are consuming content that satisfies them, which means content that agrees with their own opinions. And that creates this positive loop whereby we're so convinced that we're right, uh, automatically everybody else is wrong. So we, we, we don't listen to each other. You know? For better or worse, we live in societies where there are people around us that we don't like. Um, but yet we have to live with them. I mean, you know, it's inescapable, right? And the only way to live with others you don't like without, you know, killing each other 
is to is to have a conversation right listen to each other this is the, it's the only way there's no other way right to resolve conflict otherwise we'll just you know start beating each other up yep well our hour is is gone uh let me just <laughs> turn the the floor over to you for final statements uh, i would say i would encourage you to talk about your book because i've only read the beginning of it and uh, i'm sure there's a lot of material that we didn't touch on so anything that you might want to say to uh, entice potential readers now's the time so because there has been a lot of conversation around, you know, the fourth industrial revolution and the socioeconomic impact and whatnot, what I try to, to do with my book is fill a gap that I, I clearly saw in this discourse. And it was, you know, the perspective of, of an engineer like myself, right, a technologist, okay? How can we as technologists and myself, you know, I, I have a PhD in AI. I mean, I, I work in the field. I, I know the technology. I know what it is, right? And I know its shortcomings and its potential. How can we as engineers change things so that technology delivers better to society and to, and to democracy? How can we change technology? Not how we can change, for example, the regulatory environment, which is something that perhaps, you know, someone who's an expert in law might be able to, to enlighten us with, or how can we change perhaps, I don't know, the economics, I'm not an economist, okay? But how can we change technology? And that's why in my book, I'm sort of speaking specifically about, for example, you know, what is the problem with artificial intelligence? What is the problem of machine autonomy? How can we reinvent AI as part of society in a more sort of cybernetic way so that the AI has goals that are socially, uh, put there rather than the AI itself having its own goals. How can we redesign AI systems? How can we rethink the digital economy through blockchain so we can have a sort of idea of ownership of digital assets and data in a digital economy? And how can that change everything? How can that create sort of new wealth, new types of businesses, et cetera, et cetera. So if any of your listeners is interested to understand what technology can do in order to change the world, uh, I think that might be a book for them to pick up and take a look. George Zarkadakis, I have very much enjoyed our conversation. I hope you'll come back and talk again sometime. Thank you. Thank you, Kamal. It's been a great pleasure speaking with you. Thank you very much for your, your invitation. That was George Zarkadakis. Now, I have been podcasting for a long time. And there are different roles in podcasting. You know, if you are the person who is reaching out to potential guests and arranging the time, you're not the host of a podcast, you're the producer. But for most of my time as a podcaster, I have been both host and producer. And a lot of times what happens is I'll, I'll read something or I'll see a presentation or hear another interview on a different program with somebody that I decide I'd like to interview. I reach out to them and I bring them on with a fairly clear idea of what it is they have to say. And then they surprise me by saying something I hadn't expected. And a lot of times, they articulate a point of view that I already hold. And basically, they, and this is what I think, you know, media personalities uh, in the more intellectual space do in general, is they help people better articulate things they either already believe or they're starting to get a sense of, but they haven't, it hasn't really gelled for them. It hasn't clarified or crystallized in their mind, you know, like it does when somebody explains something very clearly as George has done in the conversation that you've just heard and in his book, which, again, I haven't read the whole thing, but the parts I've read, I, I've enjoyed greatly and I want to continue reading. 
But sometimes somebody says something that's so in line with something that the you know longtime listeners to the podcast have heard me say repeatedly that I, I worry that they think I've brought this person on just to agree with me. <laughs> there were times when that happened in this interview with George Zarkadakis. I just want to stress, I'm not the producer of this show. I hadn't read his book. I, I didn't invite him onto the show. I, you know, I was presented with the opportunity to interview him, and I did. But if you've been listening to me on these topics for a while... The following, which is an exact quote from George, could easily have come out of my mouth. Quote, given that people are no angels, how can you structure systems so that we behave in a benevolent way without coercion? Close quote. That question, answering that question, examining different answers to that question, weighing them, remixing them as need be, trying them out evaluating the results of these trials, that should be the work of a lifetime for a professional army of people. That is, to my mind, the most pressing and important question that we face as a society, particularly a technological society, in this moment. And that's saying a lot, because I'm definitely not downplaying the pressures of geopolitics or the potential for nuclear catastrophe. You know, I was a big supporter of the candidacy of Andrew Yang, in 2020. And his signature policy proposal at that time was universal basic income. And even at that time, I mean, you can go back and watch my YouTube videos from the summer of 2020. I just kept saying, I really like Andrew Yang. I like his approach. I like his attitude. I'm not particularly sold on UBI. And I agree with George. And this is how he put it, quote, if we put the government in charge of distributing wealth, we will end up poorer, close quote. And I agree. Capitalism doesn't necessarily provide uh, a comprehensive set of incentives that guide people to benevolent action, but it certainly does spark and reward creativity. And we are a very creative species. So I think, you know, we can take the goals of UBI, we can take our, our compassion for people and our vision for why something is necessary, and UBI is a proposal, you know, to meet that necessity, Let's just crank up the creativity and try out a lot more things, generate a lot more ideas and try them out and then incorporate our improved understanding that comes from the results of failures. You know, most of the ideas that we try will be failures until we get one, which is really good. And then we'll just continue to iterate on that thing for a long time, as long as it's useful. And then we'll stick with it even after it ceases to be useful and even into the period, not just of diminishing returns, but of negative returns. You know, it will actually become an increasing burden on us, but we'll remember that it worked so well in the past and we'll continue to do it. That's the process, folks. It's painful. It's messy. It takes a long time. You as a, a mortal individual don't get to see the end result, but you know, that's human existence and there's a lot to like about it. All right, that brings us to the end. But as always, I'd like to thank the Padverb production team, executive producer Anna Haskell, producers Slava Borisov and Alina Voigt, and assistant producer Sonia Saw. I'm your host, KMO, and I do some of the editing. All right, I'm out. I will talk to you again soon. Take care. <laughs> <laughs>